The Deeper Dig is sponsored by Casella. Let's recycle better together. Be sure to empty and clean recyclables. When in doubt, throw it out. Americans toss far too many non-recyclable items in their recycling bins. It adds up and hurts recycling programs. Learn what belongs in your blue bin at casella.com slash recycle better. Let's recycle better together. One of the things I did was um, staff a telephone line that provided uh, information about where a woman could get an abortion. So we called it the Problem Pregnancy Counseling Service. Could have been prosecuted for it. We never were. This is Ellie Stickney. She had a decades-long career with Planned Parenthood, including several years as the CEO of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. But before that, before Roe v. Wade, before the Vermont Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion here, Stickney was a volunteer working a Planned Parenthood hotline. At the time, she was about 25 years old and a mother of two. So we got calls from all over, and I'll never forget the very first call that came in on the line. And I expected to pick up the phone and hear the voice of a young woman. And I heard the voice of a man who was self-described as a middle-aged man uh, from New Hampshire. Uh, He and his wife had four children. Um, She became pregnant, did not. uh, It was an unintended pregnancy. And they were desperate. They knew that they couldn't uh, care for any more children than they already had. And he wanted to know where they could get some help. And I can still, I can still hear the fear in his voice. And uh, he was a scared, a scared person. Uh, he and his wife uh, needed help, and they didn't know where they were going to get it. So they were looking to us for some information. This is The Deeper Dig. I'm Riley Robinson. In the next few days, Vermont could become the first state in the country to enshrine reproductive rights in its state constitution. Lawmakers have been working for the past four years to put this amendment before voters. And if public polling is any indication, it's likely to pass by a wide margin. But Vermont wasn't always a safe haven for abortion rights. In fact, it used to be a state where most people traveled elsewhere to terminate a pregnancy. Until 1972, under Vermont law, it was illegal for a doctor to provide abortions. That changed when the Vermont Supreme Court decided a case called Beecham versus Leahy just a few months before the Roe decision. But even though abortion became legal, it wasn't freely accessible. Vermont hospitals back then performed fewer than 20 abortions per year. Around this time, more than 1,000 patients traveled out of state every year for the procedure, often to either New York or Canada. Even the University of Vermont Medical Center, which has now endorsed Prop 5, restricted access to the procedure back then. And this comes from the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Soon after the Beecham decision, the OBGYN department at the medical school drew up recommendations for providing abortion services, and they presented them to the hospital's board of trustees. But the trustees told them no. So activists in the local community took matters into their own hands. And this is in the the summer of 72, and then that's when the people sprang into action and started the health center. And the thing that I remember the most is that we had a big meeting, probably over 100 people, um, at the Unitarian Church on Church Street. They elected a board and formed committees. 
Somebody found a space in Colchester where a physician agreed to rent them part of his building. They got a loan from a local bank, co-signed by people who believed in the cause. And in less than three months, they created the Vermont Women's Health Center. It was the first women-run, legally recognized health center to provide abortions, along with a whole range of OBGYN services. It did feel significant. There were other feminist health centers uh, around the country, but I think the Vermont Women's Health Center was one of the first. This is Rachel Atkins. She later became executive director at the Women's Health Center. In September of 72, the health center was ready to open, and we got... This is Sue Burton, one of the founding staff members. I'm a little hazy on how this law worked, but if if a clinic is, has already opened, you couldn't shut it down, but you, you could possibly delay the opening of a clinic. The founders tried not to publicize the health center until it was up and running, but then word got out. And so instead of announcing that the Women's Health Center is open, somebody, a couple people from the board came in and had their blood drawn, you know, as a screening test, so that we could say we'd had, we were open. <laughs> so there was, you know, there was a lot of maneuvering and care, careful thought put into every step of the way. I mean, it wasn't a smooth sailing. That fall, there was some local pushback within Colchester to the health center providing abortions. There was a referendum put on the ballot in Colchester because we were, our first clinic was in Colchester. And it said, would you like to have an unlicensed clinic in your community? <laughs> there was a horrible hearing in Colchester where people pro, you know, spoke pro and con, but at any rate, it was just a hearing, and then the vote came up, and we, they allowed for the health center to maintain its, its, its existence there. So They hired a couple doctors and a small staff where everyone did everything, from answering the phone to running labs. Berta Geller was one of those first hires. She was an elementary school art teacher, and she didn't have a medical background, but she had gotten involved with a feminist reading group in the early 70s. I had just arrived in Vermont in the summer of 71, and um, I was a new mother. I had, I had a, a newborn, was born in March of 71. Um, so I, I came and I wasn't working, and um, I was introduced to our bodies ourselves. There was a, um, we had a kind of a women's group that read that together. I, you know, I had only one experience, well, maybe two experiences, but one personal experience around abortion before 1972. When I was in college, I had a friend who became pregnant and had an illegal abortion, and I took her to New York City and um, dropped her off at a hotel that then um, took her in a van, blindfolded her. She was gone all day. Of course, this was prior to cell phones, and I was just waiting for her to come back. <laughs> you know, um, and I mean, her experience was okay. You know, wasn't bad. But then they said, you know, oh, and you really should have antibiotics, and that'll be another hundred dollars, which you didn't have. Sue was also a teacher. Around this time, she'd started working at a free birth control clinic in Franklin County. The group had in Burlington was had started to form the Women's Health Center Clinic. 
Um, so I applied for, as a, for a staff position there, and I was hired as part of the first staff of the Women's Health Center. Was there a, a particular galvanizing moment for you where you became, you knew you were passionate about women's health or abortion access or... Actually, as I think of it, one of my neighbors in Franklin County told me that she had taken ergotrate for, for the cows in the barn to bring on an abortion. And that just shocked me that people were so desperate and, and it wasn't available. You said ergotrate? It's an it's a, um, estrogen hormone. It would bring on, I think it brings on contractions or... You give it during childbirth, usually, if, if there's a problem. A lot of us who were, I mean, I had had, an, when I was in Baltimore, I had an abortion, and that was, I had the option of meeting someone on a street corner and taking me to someplace in Pennsylvania for an abortion. I mean, this is word of mouth that I got that. And then the other option was because I was a graduate of Johns Hopkins, and I had a friend who had had, a, had an abortion there. I went, to the Johns, I went to Johns Hopkins Hospital. Now, I, you know, at the time, I didn't really think about it, but as I look back, was it because I was a Hopkins grad? I mean, was this one of those perks? And I had to see a psychiatrist. They had to say, you know, sort of like, the reason you could have a hospital abortion is if your life was in danger, so the code was you'd kill yourself if you didn't have one. You had to say, if I don't have an abortion... Well, I don't know if I said it directly or the implication, but that was part of the code. So that's what people had to go through. I, and very few people probably had access to hospital abortions. I began working at the Vermont Women's Health Center in the spring of 1973, about six months um, after they opened and it was really a heady time because we were riding the, the crest of the wave of that women's health movement. This is Janet. She asked that we not use her last name because of the threats and violence against abortion providers, something she's seen throughout her career. I was um, hired as a health care assistant. Um, my role was to... Um, educate women about contraceptive issues, sexual health, abortion choices, risk complications. It was a time where um, the hierarchy, the structure was very flat. And so people um, assumed many different tasks. Some days I would work in the lab washing instruments, um, doing pregnancy tests. Some days I would do patient education. Some days I would be the support person for someone as they went through an abortion. We went in with the women and held their hands while they had their abortion. And then they went into recovery. And we also were, you know, were assigned to recovery room to just make sure they were okay. And if they were RH negative, I mean, you know, we had to draw blood in the, before they had the abortion, do blood typing. Doctors looked at it. I mean, we all sort of helped out, did what we can. We all learned how to do those things. By early 1973, each month the health center was seeing about 300 patients and performing about 100 abortions. A few years in, the board voted to dissolve itself, and the health center became a workers' collective. 
there aren't as many collectives still standing as there used to be. It was part of that burst of energy and kind of positive, everybody is equal and the two doctors, Judy Tyson and Emma Wenberg Adelenghi, also took on the less glamorous tasks of maintaining the health center alongside the rest of the staff. When we were in, our first clinic was in Colchester. And one time a drug salesman came to Colchester and he wanted to speak to the doctor. And, and because Emma Wenberg Adelenghi really believed in rotation, I said, well, she's over there scrubbing the bathroom. And it's just, you know, I don't think I, the junk salesman kind of went, whoa. <laughs> Eventually, the health center started training women to become physician assistants through a unique apprenticeship program. Well, it was kind of interesting because what happened in the uh, late 60s, early 70s is paramedics came back from uh, the Vietnam War. And they were trained healthcare professionals, but they didn't really fit into the healthcare. You know, there was no place to, to put them in the healthcare field. They weren't nurses. They weren't really med techs. They had some pretty, some of them, some very extensive skills. Um, and so there was a movement, A, to start a bunch of physician assistant pr- training programs at, at universities. And there was also a movement um, somehow in Vermont, somehow uh, got the idea of allowing these people with the training to become registered in the state as a PA. You know, eventually, um, I wrote a grant to the United Methodist Church Troy Conference to fund um, a program to train women to become uh, physician's assistants. In the beginning, Um, It was really an apprenticeship training program, meaning that you worked alongside an experienced clinician. And, you know, any kind of apprenticeship training is that, you know, you you watch, do a little with supervision, you do more with supervision. You know, you keep growing until that person decides that you're able to be entrusted. This is Kate Nicholas. She also became a PA through the Health Center's apprenticeship program. She actually wrote the curriculum and got it approved by the state medical board. And then she went through the program that she designed. In Vermont, you can train to be a lawyer by an apprenticeship program and then challenging the bar. So it was uh, similar to that. And in 1973, I started training and was certified in 1975. And over the course of the health center's existence, we trained over 15 mid-levels to provide gynecological care. And many of those providers also became abortion providers. This was a really unusual system. From the 70s through the 90s, Vermont and Montana were the only states where PAs were allowed to provide abortions. The Vermont Women's Health Center was written about in major medical journals. We were definitely pioneers uh, in, in a lot of different ways and in terms of access, in terms of training, in terms of use of advanced practice clinicians. The Vermont Department of Health collected detailed data on patient outcomes at the Women's Health Center. 
1989, the American Journal of Public Health published a study that found no difference in the complication rate between abortions done by doctors and abortions done by physician assistants. Another study in 1996 and 1997 found the same thing. Abortions by PAs in this outpatient setting were just as safe. But still, years after these studies, people pushing for greater restrictions on abortion providers have often argued that the restrictions are for patient safety. This was at the heart of a case out of Texas, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead, which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016. Texas had passed a law requiring all abortion providers to work in specially outfitted buildings that fit the requirements of a surgical center. It also required abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. These requirements, which were billed as patient safety measures, forced about half the abortion clinics in the state to close. The court ultimately ruled against those Texas restrictions, but several other states still have similar regulations on where abortions can happen and who can do them. Kate Nicholas, who practiced at the health center for decades, said she sees these as really bad faith arguments. It's all a ruse. All of that stuff. You need to wait 24 hours. You need to have this. You need to have that. It's a ruse to to limit abortion services. It always has been. People used similar rhetoric to challenge the health center in the 70s. And over and over again, their data showed patient safety wasn't an issue. It is not new rhetoric. It's always anything to curtail services, anything to scare people. This is not about this is not about women. This is not about women's safety at all. Because if you want to talk about what's unsafe, pregnancy. You want to talk about what happens during pregnancy and birth? Compare that to abortion statistics. So anyway, it's not about women at all. It's about, it's about power and it's about curtailing women's rights. Right? And, and part, here's, the, here's the bad thing. You know, women who have access to resources have always and will always be able to um, find somewhere that they can terminate a pregnancy, always. It's the, it's the young women, it's the women without resources, it's the underserved people who, um, who suffer the most um, by this, this curtailing of services. That's why this this comparison of complication rates in first trimester abortions performed by PAs and physicians was done to say, is it or is it not safe? So Kate, Berta, Janet, and Rachel, they all went through the PA hands-on apprenticeship program. Sue went to a training program in California and returned to practice at the health center. And eventually, they also started training UVM medical students and OBGYN residents on how to do abortions. They said it wasn't a standard part of medical training at the time, at UVM or elsewhere. It came from a Catholic tradition, like many hospitals did. came from a Catholic tradition, and so with that um, influence, they declined to take on providing abortion services. And that's why it started, that's why the health center started. I think it was really important, and I really commend the founders for creating a place where it was providing services that were embedded, right? There were abortion services, contraceptive services, gynecological services. 
um, I thought it was really an important model because a, a lot of places, you know, there were a lot of places that just provided abortion services and maybe some contraception. Um, and this was not what this was about. This was really about, to, to, not to sound corny, it was really about empowering women, empowering women with knowledge, empowering them with the voice that they should have to be able to say yes or no. Um, and it was, um, it was about showing that there was a different way. You could have a different relationship with your healthcare provider that was more, that was equal. I loved my work. It felt like a privilege to be able to provide non-judgmental, respectful care to women at a critical juncture in their lives. The decision to terminate a pregnancy is a momentous decision. It's in the sense that you are choosing the path that your life is going to take at that time. Some of the providers have stories of patients that stuck with them. Uh, there was a very, very young woman that came to us with her mother, and her mother was supportive, and she was, um, you know, clear in her decision. She was 13. I mean, she was, it was beyond sort of her full comprehension in a lot of ways, but, you know, I was happy that she had the support of her mother. And I later found out that she had been sexually abused by her mother's partner. And the mother was aware of that. And uh, none of that was disclosed or discovered at the time that we saw her. So that, that stuck with me. And I, you know, had... There was a woman who was impregnated by her priest. So it's just, it's, it's, there is no sort of classic um, woman that has an abortion. Every story is unique. The health center moved to Burlington, then burned in an accidental fire in 1977. They ended up at a new location on North Ave, also in Burlington. But generally, things were pretty calm until anti-abortion protests ramped up in the late 80s and early 90s. One day we got word that um, Operation Rescue was targeting us. Operation Rescue was a nationwide anti-abortion group that bussed protesters to demonstrations. The organization drew nationwide attention after a big protest at the 1988 Democratic National Convention in Atlanta. The Operation Rescue came from out of state, um, but there was a very active right to life movement in, in Vermont. The very first time that they picketed or they did a demonstration outside the health center, I was in the hospital recovering from my C-section with the twins. So I had my C-section on Saturday. And I was getting discharged on that Friday. So my husband picked me up. I have the two babies in buckets, when the old buckets, they used to call them. And we put them in the car, and we're going home, except he doesn't take me home. He takes me to the health center because he knew that's where I really wanted to be. Okay, I'm like six days 
postpartum, post C-section. And I show up with these two babies. And as I'm dri- we're driving into the parking lot, people are yelling at me, don't kill your baby. And then they look in the back of the car. There's two little babies. And they're like, they shut up. Uh, the most notable was they came in uh, the back of a uh, moving truck. The protesters? Yes. and. So there were two a young couple that pretended to come in for a pregnancy test and they sat down in, in the doorway as they were leaving and they blocked the door open. And then they opened the back of the pickup truck and like 54 people came storming down and into the facility inside and they came inside like a trojan horse situation in the middle of the day and they they um locked themselves together down the hallway they did go into one exam room a woman was waiting to have um a colposcopy because she had several abnormal pap smears and they we were ruling out cervical cancer and she was a uh low-income single mom from Washington County. And it had taken her quite a while to arrange childcare and um, a ride and the money and everything to come to this service. And they, you know, come get these services that were critically important. And, you know, they came into her exam room and said, we're here to rescue you. So, um, you know, they didn't they didn't recognize that people came to the health center for a lot of different services, including OB care. One of the Operation Rescue tactics was to clog up the court system. When protesters were arrested, they'd refuse to give their names, just aliases like baby John Doe number 10. Courts couldn't release them on bail because they didn't have any identifying information. At one point in 1990, according to news reports at the time, nearly 100 protesters were detained at an old psychiatric facility in Waterbury. And I believe that the thinking was um, that we were a small state and that they could kind of come in and cripple us. And they weren't successful because what happened is Vermont was very, very aligned. So when I say that, you know, basically the belief was Abortion care is a legal service. And so from the Burlington police chief, the police department, corrections, um, you know, the legislature, the governor, um, you know, anybody that interfaced with the protesters and the, um, you know, Operation Rescue folks and the picketing held the line and basically said, you know, we're going to uphold the law. So here in Vermont, it's kind of like this. I may not agree with you, but okay, you you, you do you, I'll do me, right? If you come in from the outside and try to mess with Vermont, you do not get a good warm reception. And so because these people were from out of state, they did not get a very warm reception. Um, and so many of them were kept overnight in, in the jail. 
I think they had to get bailed out. It was a whole long thing. I think they got more than they bargained for. A couple times learned of them coming. And so we would have counter protesters who would circle the clinic. And when I say counter protesters, I'm talking about state senators, uh, leaders in the faith community, you know, a lot of um, well-known folks um, in the community connected with the Episcopal Church and the Unitarian Church and the synagogue. And, you know, so there was a lot of um, opposition. Around the same time, beginning in the 90s, there was a string of murders where shooters targeted abortion providers. Rachel and others at the health center knew some of the providers who were targeted, and they remember it as a really scary time. We had to put bars on the windows to our chart room. We had to put locks on the doors to the upstairs so they couldn't reach treatment rooms. A doctor colleague of mine was shot at his kitchen table. Another doctor colleague of mine was shot um, in on his way to church. I mean, it started getting really scary. Yeah. What was the what was the mood like during this time for the people who worked in the center? Well, you were under siege, you know, and so it was it was pretty scary. And, um, you know, they would follow me around the. You know, I'd go to the Champlain Valley Fair and they would follow me around and say stuff to me. And, you know, one time a photographer for one of the news stations called me late at night and I had been in court again, you know, when they are court cases for some of the picketers. And and this guy called me and said, you know, I've never done this before, but the way that they were looking at you in court, I couldn't go to sleep without telling you that I'm, I'm concerned for your safety. Oh, we had bulletproof vests. I didn't wear them. I, I, I didn't wear them. I, I don't know if it was my optimism. So it, it's not it's not correct thinking, but you're like, you're putting that bulletproof vest on, you think someone's going to shoot you and kill you. If I don't have it on, nobody's going to kill me. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but I did, never wore it. It was a time where you had to ask yourself, did you have the courage of your convictions? I had two young children at the time and a husband. Was it okay for me to potentially put myself at risk given what effect it would have on my family? Many of us Um, soul-searched. And that is what's happening for people now, still, in these times. How did this all end? They passed barriers in a lot of states where you know, not barriers, but like clinic access laws where picketers can't come closer than X amount of feet. I don't know. It faded out. It faded out. And I I don't really know why. I think Operation Rescue faded out. You know, providers, um, there were less and less providers. uh, So access got, you know, 
very effective. Going into the 1980s, the barriers to abortion were often less about what was legal and more about material access. There were simply fewer people providing abortions. Physicians that did their residencies when abortion was illegal watched young, healthy women dying from illegal abortion. So there was a whole cohort of providers that were in that age group that provided abortion services and reproductive health care for women for, you know, the first like 15 years after Roe. Because of what they'd seen. Because of what they'd seen and how impactful it was. And what happened is those, as those providers started you know, retiring and getting older, there wasn't that much of, of, there weren't young providers coming in to replace them for several different reasons. One is that it wasn't taught in medical school in most residency programs. And uh, it wasn't a requirement to finish your OBGYN residency to learn how to manage abortion um, complications or how to provide abortion care. By 1992, only 12% of OBGYN residency programs nationwide offered routine training in first trimester abortion. And so it became sort of separate from the rest of healthcare. Because there were a few providers, then you had certain providers that provided the services. And so it wasn't like you could go to your family practice physician or you could go to your regular OBGYN and it was just in the list of services they provided. Because of the politics and everything, it was always sort of seen as other in terms of healthcare. Rachel spoke at professional conferences around the country about how PAs, nurse practitioners, and nurse midwives could provide safe abortions. In the 90s, professional medical organizations like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Public Health Association formally endorsed non-physicians doing first trimester abortions. And Rachel's advocacy seems to have played a big role in that shift. And the ripple effects continued years later. In 2013, the governor of California signed a bill to allow nurse practitioners and other non-physicians to provide first trimester abortions. And abortion methods also evolved. In 2000, the FDA approved mifepristone, a pill to terminate a pregnancy. The medication can be used at home, and it's now the method for 75% of abortions in Vermont. The Vermont Women's Health Center merged with Planned Parenthood of Northern New England in 2000, but it left behind a lineage of healthcare providers who had been trained in this model. The business model was not being successful towards the end, right? And we were trying to figure out why. Why why isn't this working like it used to? And one of the reasons that I thought was we did such a good job, and I'm not kidding, training people how to do women-centered care so women could go to a more traditional setting and get the same kind of care because we had been involved in their training. And so I'm like, we put ourselves out of business. And I thought, it's okay. It's okay to put ourselves out of business. 
if, if, if this way of caring for women was becoming more mainstream, then we were very successful. Many of the women who founded the Women's Health Center or worked there in those early days are now in their 70s or older. And they expressed a rage, a frustration that's been echoed on protest signs over the past few years. They're angry that younger generations are fighting the same political battle again. When I have to tell you, when Roe fell, I changed my, anytime I introduced myself to people, I'm like, hi, I'm Kate Nicholas. I'm the director of simulation education operations and a former abortion provider because I couldn't stand it because no one wants to use the word abortion. It's not a dirty word. It is not, it's not a dirty word. It's okay. I think we lost ground in the abortion debate in this country when we often seemed apologetic about abortion. Abortion is nothing to be apologetic about. It is a moral and ethical decision. I want to say that for many women, the decision to have an abortion was made more difficult because they felt negatively judged by a minority of society. And that is still happening today. It was true in the 70s, and it continues unabated today. Thank you to Maura Graff and the Silver Special Collections Library at UVM. They both helped me track down archival materials for this story. This show also used music from Blue Dot Sessions. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to get alerts for new episodes. One last reminder that Election Day is November 8th. VT Digger will be reporting on results from Prop 5 as well as races up and down the ballot. You can find all our election coverage at vtdigger.org slash elections.